Hello, everybody, and welcome to this special episode of Career in Ruins. It is Friday, the 21st of July, and we are in the middle of the Festival of Archaeology, as hosted by the Council for British Archaeology. Um, the theme this year is Archaeology and Creativity, and we were approached by Neil and the team to produce a special podcast about the Portable Antiquity Scheme, which um, is just about to hit its 20th birthday. Now, for those of you that don't know what the Portable Antiquity Scheme, it says here in front of me on, on one of their websites, it started in 1997. Now, I don't quite understand that, but I think we're going to get to the bottom of it. And, um, and this is in a response to the Treasure Act. And um, although the Act required people to report treasure, there was no mechanism to, uh, to um, make notes of non-treasure items that are being identified. So the Portable Antiquity Scheme allows people um, to share their finds and report records, which helps improve our um, archaeological understanding and knowledge around the country, which is very, very cool and a great initiative. And we're really pleased to be joined by a brilliant team of people on the podcast today. team today we've got michael lewis the head of the portable antiquity scheme we've got emma ewell a metal detectorist and pas south recorder and of course we're joined by neil redfern head of the cba the busiest man in archaeology and a longtime friend of career in ruins so welcome everyone hello hello, hello. i guess we'll, we'll kick off it's it's the festival of archaeology neil this was this was your your brainchild as, as if you will in terms of a, as, as a podcast ideal so First of all, how are you? You, you look you don't look too tired, but you, hopefully you're hanging on there. But also tell us more about the festival and why we're here, why we're chatting today. Okay, so um, brilliant. Thank you so much for, for, for doing this again for us this year. The festival's going great guns. We're, we're on day seven. Um, I've had one night at home in that whole time. Uh, I got home last night. Um, we had a great opening weekend in Wales this year at Paris Castle with the National Trust and the National Trust archaeologists. Uh, it was wet, which was very different from last year when we were absolutely baking and sweltering in a heat wave. This year it was dramatic skies in Wales, um, but that was, you know, really, really good. I've been flying all over the place. Yesterday I was actually at Avebury, um, or the day before I was at Avebury, which was fantastic. Um, and uh, next week I'll be heading down ultimately to Greenwich, Royal Park, which is where our closing event will be. We chose archaeology and creativity as our theme because archaeology is fundamentally about creating new knowledge. It's about recognising and creating new value, the, the cultural value that comes from what we actually do. And it's also about creating great stories and great narratives. And we use so many ways to do that, whether it's an exhibition, it can be artwork, it can be poetry, it can be, you know, photographs. And I think that's what we're really interested in exploring is about that multifaceted way of telling people about what we do, because it's the best conversation in the world when you bring lots of people into it. I must admit, I absolutely love our conversations during the Festival of, Festival of Archaeology, because it's, it's such a lovely time to get so many 
interesting professionals together, interesting people, folks who are just generally interested in the past to have conversations and 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 discuss the, the the future of a discipline and where we are. And you mentioned there creating new knowledge. And I think that probably segues quite nicely into thinking about how we create knowledge through things like the Portable Antiquity Scheme. Michael, I wonder if you could give us a brief potted history of the PAS, um, perhaps address uh, L- Lawrence's timeframe there and uh, and talk us through what the PAS is and how it's how it's formed into what it is today. Um, well, as Lawrence says, the, the PAS was established really as a, as a kind of reaction to Treasury reform in 1997. There was a sort of question about, you know, okay, the Treasury reform is focusing on gold and silver objects, essentially. But what about everything else that tells a really important story about the past? How's that going to be recorded? So pilot schemes were set up um, in different parts of England and Wales to see if it could work. Could we engage with the metal detecting community to record the finds that they find, but widen that the wider public as, as well. Um, the kind of date's a bit of a strange one in terms of um, yeah, 20 years of the Portable Antiquity Scheme, because it was in 2003 that we got funded through the National um, Heritage um, Fund. Sorry, we got funded by the National Lottery Fund. It's changed its name, so I'll get confused. Anyway, it got funded by the, the National Lottery Fund um, as a national scheme covering the whole of England and, and the whole of Wales. So there we had finds the officers, the archaeologists on the ground who record these objects um, in every part, if you like, of England and, and Wales, um, recording um, the discoveries made by the public, principally, of course, by the uh, metal detecting community. Um, and as you say, the kind of the main aim of the scheme really is just to record these finds to, to advance knowledge. We think that they can tell kind of really important and interesting stories about the past. And really importantly, they, they tell a different story, actually, sometimes. And what's found through archaeological excavations. So it's almost another data set that complements what you get from archaeological excavations. And that's that's really important because um, these everyday finds are, are, are kind of really um, changing how we think of places we thought we knew about and types of objects we knew about and um, places as well. That's amazing. Thank you, Michael. I think the, the amazing thing about the portable antiquity scheme, and I'm going to use a frame, phrase that I probably overuse far too much whenever we do these things, but they provide us this incredible insight, both on a spatial and a temporal approach. So we, we can see where finds are scattered around the landscape, but we also can see depth of time. So we can see early, well, I guess, Bronze Age, Iron Age artifacts all the way through to Roman medieval and probably some interesting Second World War and, and late, late, sort of early, late, late history and sort of uh, early modern stuff that comes up on the Thames foreshores, perhaps. But um, it's, it's such a valuable scheme for on, on, on that side. And I guess archaeology, the historic environment, cultural heritage as a discipline has changed a lot over that time that it's been running. How, how have you seen the scheme itself um, evolve and expand or contract or, or differ? Yeah, I mean, I think to start with, as you know, I mean, the kind of Portable Antiquity Scheme was set up in an era where there wasn't particularly good relationships, probably with archaeologists and metal detectorists in particular, because of the stop ca- um, stop taking our past campaign and and uh, general kind of animosity really between archaeologists and detectorists. And that's transformed over the last 20 or so years, um, where people are much more engaged and, and willing to, you know, see it from the other person's perspective, if you like. Um, and you know, work together. So I suppose the biggest change I've seen, um, really, well, two changes really. One is this um, the, the fact that more people are wanting to engage um, 
with the portable antiquity scheme ever than before. In fact, we're dealing with so many fines now that it's getting quite it's got getting quite hard. So we're obviously needing um, metal detectors themselves to help us more. And we'll probably talk about that in a moment. The other thing, which is as big as a big change, is the kind of transfer in digital technology. So when the portable antiquity scheme database was kind of first established as well in 2003 as a as one that was online if you like um i don't think we kind of really completely envisaged how digital technology would change and how people engage with that in the same way as they do now um but that's also in terms of how the metal detecting community um converses as well i mean it was very much the case that people were meeting in small clubs still happens of course but now there's a big like like online engagement um with the detecting community which I think is you know is changing how one we record finds and how we also engage with people as well a little bit. Something you mentioned there was the the evolution of the involvement of or the relationship between archaeologists and metal detectorists over the years, and that's certainly something I've noticed throughout my career. That uh, more recently, particularly the projects I've been involved in in the UK have almost by default included metal detectorists, and actually it's where Lawrence and I got to meet Emma for the first time. Um, so it's great that you could join us here today, Emma. Um, how, how have you seen the world of metal detecting and your kind of role within the wider heritage sphere develop alongside the PAS over the last few years? Sure. Um, thanks for having me on. Um, I feel so I've been detecting probably for around eight years now. And when I first started, I remember going to um, an, um, a field to metal detect and I found some hammered coins. And uh, I was fairly new to to the you know to the scene, so I wasn't quite sure what I needed to do. And and another member of my club said, "Oh, you know, you should take those to the flow, and they'll they'll record them for you." So I was like, "Oh, what's this all about?" So um, I was being educated from my club to to go and report these items so that they could be recorded. And um, I met up with my flow, and he provided me with a fantastic report on these coins. Um, and ever since I was given that report, it sparked my interest to be like, wow, like this, there's an actual database with all these finds on. Look at what people have found. Um, and that that really did spark my interest about me then becoming a self-recorder because I was like, I knew how busy the flows were. I wanted to help my flow um, to be able to just process my own stuff because I was going out metal detecting so often. I was having loads and loads of I was really lucky. I was having quite a lot of good finds that I could put on the database. Um, so I managed to get some training under my belt to to learn the database, to put up stuff myself. And I've seen that really grow. I've seen a lot of people become really interested in trying to do that themselves and reporting stuff to the flows and taking their objects. And they really enjoy getting that report back. Uh, of it being logged you know it's got the picture there the information all the dates and people my friends my the other metal detectorists they absolutely love seeing that report so i think i've seen a lot of people want to get those reports and see where they're you know see the data see the information that these reports can create so it it's definitely growing like as michael said there's a lot of finds now that's coming up um and a lot of people now Metal, more people than ever metal detecting because of the popularity of all the TV shows and stuff. Um, so it's a huge, huge interest. Um, and with advancement in technology, you know, more and more people are going to see it and want to be involved. I'm so glad you brought the TV shows up, Emma. I mean, I, I, we couldn't not 
do this podcast. Well, we couldn't do this podcast and not bring up the fact that there's the incredible Detectorist TV program, which I love. And I got married two weeks ago, and the, the theme tune to that. Thank you very much. The theme tune to Detectorist was what the was the music my wife walked down the aisle to. So love that show. Love everything about it. Um, and Johnny Flynn, you can't go too far wrong. But um, I get. Like, <laughs> That's really interesting to hear numbers are going up because of things like that, because it's quite an interesting representation of of detective, metal detecting as a hobby. How, how close to the bone is it in its representation of, uh, of detectorists and clubs? Um, you have to laugh about it sometimes because there are some bits which are uh, very, very true. Um, there's, <laughs> for example, there's a, a scene in it where they find something and, you know, then they go to their club meet and, someone's there giving a talk about buttons and that happens you know people turn up at your club and they give a talk about buttons so it's very true to life you laugh about it but it does happen um yeah no it's it's um it's very real it is actually very real there are some bits obviously quite dramatized and made up and all that sort of stuff um but there is definitely a, a true side of of finding a lot of rubbish in between good stuff as well so that's lovely, though, and I think that kind of ties into the Festival of Archaeology and perhaps um, previous year's themes of the Festival of Archaeology and appreciating the things around us. And it doesn't have to be really old, but it, it's just evidence of past human activity of whatever it is. You know, and, you know, I'm sure you can see the value that the method detecting clubs and the political antiquity scheme brings to our discipline and 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 everything that you guys are doing as well. Um. For me, there are a few strands in the conversation that sort of weave through this. First of all, actually, archaeologists are very good at just talking to themselves. And actually, I think we need to actually learn some of the skills of actually talking to, to other people in a way that actually engages them and where we actually listen. So again, I'm, I'm fascinated by this whole concept of listening to metal sectorists and why they go to certain places and why they might have a favourite field and what created that thought process in them. And I had a, uh, during the opening weekend of the Festival of Archaeology in Wales, I interviewed David Howell from the Portable Antiquity Scheme in Wales, and we had a fantastic conversation. But then the question we got right at the end from a member of the public was, um, what do you think of um, the Detectorist programme? And um, I must admit, live time, I thought, oh, gosh, how do I answer this? But actually, what's really interesting about the Tetris programme, and again, if you go to the theme of creativity, because it's affectionately a fictional programme, you can string a story together better in half an hour than you can with a programme, say, like Time Team or The Great British Dig, where actually what you're doing is you're cutting a series of montage of live time activities. So in many ways, to actually get across the processes and the thought processes, a drama like that can be far more effective and far more engaging than some of our actual technical archaeological programs that can come across as being a little bit obscure. I'm not saying they're not brilliant because they are actually brilliant. You've and seen again, Derek I, and myself on Time Team then. <laughs> we've, all, we've all been there, but by the very nature of you having an editor who has to cut an awful lot of footage down to a program, just like you do with your podcasts, you end up getting a particular product. But when you're writing a narrative 
you tell a story, you can engage differently. And I think it's lovely what Emma says about being able to recognise those things. Because Emma, I can tell you, I know plenty of archaeologists who would love to sit in a dark room and count the number of buttons that they might have collected. And this goes back to the point we said earlier, and we were talking about before we came on air, the similarities between us all are far greater than the differences. <laughs> because, you know, for me, the thing about the broadest definition of archaeology is everybody can be interested in it and you can find your niche. So, yes, you can be a button counter or you can just be somebody who likes to wander through the landscape, you know, in dreamlike mode. I think that's what's so beautiful about these conversations. It's it, it, the activities centre us in a place and that we're not too dissimilar in our thought processes. I think if you are a button collector or specialist, please get in touch because we'd love to do a podcast with you. That sounds absolutely brilliant. Lauren, stop shaking your head. <laughs> um, before before moving away from the detector, it's ever so slightly. Um, I, I have to agree with what you said there, Neil, that um, while the content of the show is about detectorists, I recognise almost every character in that show from even just the wall within the walls of my department, let alone the field of archaeology more generally. So I, I think, as you say, we are much more similar than we are different in many, many respects. Um, something you mentioned, Emma, um, and I want to I want to come to Michael with this one, I think, is the, the joy of getting reports. And I must admit, naively, I'd never really thought about the two way traffic in terms of information that you get with finds liaison officers and the PAS more generally. And it's it's really it's it's lovely to hear that kind of the, the joy of the system kind of working in in a circle almost and information going in but information also come out how how do you see that from your side michael in terms of the two-way traffic of knowledge yeah i think it was always really important um, as part of the post antiquity scheme that we were having conversations with detectorists because people like to meet they like to talk about their finds and in fact that kind of physical aspect interaction between people was really difficult during the the covid period of course when we weren't allowed to meet and it was a difficult way of just engaging with people you know, through digital technology rather than those kind of face-to-face -face meetings, because um, as already been said, you know, they, you know, detectors have a real genuine passion in the past, mostly, the most of them. I mean, obviously, like all walks of life, there's different people, isn't there? But generally speaking, most detectors I've met are really excited about their discoveries. They want to know more about them. Um, they want to have that discussions because we as archaeologists don't know everything about everything they find. And of course, a lot of detectors know a lot about what they discover. And that's, you know, that's well known that detectorists are experts at looking at metal finds compared with most archaeologists. So it is a sort of discussion about what is this and what do we think it is. Um, and like Neil was saying, I think what's really important is where detectorists are searching their own landscapes and that additional information that they can bring about that picture, because they're there on the ground observing things like we would as if we were archaeologists on our sites. So it's, um, you know, that capturing that record is quite tricky actually and it's only sometimes through those conversations that um, archaeologists defines the agent officers and the detectors are having but, but as you say also um, I do know that people like that kind of validation I suppose that the finds the agent officer brings to those objects you know they speak to their colleagues um, they're a link to other people you know whether they're in universities whether they're in uh, museums or whatever they are and um, that brings a whole kind of community together and in some ways, the, the liaison bit is the clue, isn't it, in the mm. job? You know, that's what they're doing. Those finds liaison officers are connecting people with those objects, but connecting other people to other people. 
And I think hopefully we can start to work towards being more of a community mm. that is looking to explore the past together rather than as it sometimes is kind of talked about them and us and us and them and detectorists and archaeologists. And there's not really a word that kind of describes us all. And as Neil mm. says, the interests we all have are slightly different, but nonetheless, as a collective mass, they're basically doing the same thing, aren't they? Exploring the past to learn more about it. I've been really fortunate over the last few years, actually, to do some work with various finds liaison officers on analysis of, of metal that's kind of come in from detectorists. And it's quite, it's lovely to know that that information is is going back out to, to the folks doing the, the the kind of frontline data capture. That's that's really good to hear. Um, thinking about the, the process of being a metal detectorist, I'm, I'm quite keen to take the opportunity while Emma's here to to, to drill into the process a bit, because I, I'm, I must admit, it's probably shamefully that I, I don't, I, I I kind of see see you guys in the field, but that's that's about the extent of my knowledge of the process. How do you how do you go about picking a place to survey? How do you decide the best place places to work, and and what's what's the kind of the overall process of that? There's sometimes a mix of um, ideas and picking the spot to go to in a field. You know, some sometimes I'll arrive at a field. Um, so sometimes I don't have a choice of a field. So I go out with my club a lot. So often we turn up to the farmer's field, we have permission to dig on um, and we're given a space and that is it. So you're pretty limited, you know, you're you're in this field and that's where you're detecting for the day. Um, sometimes, you know, sometimes you just get a feeling. Sometimes I'm like, I have a little look around and I'm like, I'm feeling that corner over there and I'm going to go over there. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Other times, if there is particular, you know, things about the village, like an old church, for example, or depending on how close the main road is, or was there a major crossroad or something, you know, those, if the field is close to those sorts of areas, that will then weigh the way you're going to detect the field, whether you're going to choose to go closer to the church or closer to the crossroads, because you knew that potentially might have more footfall in that area of that field. Or if there's a huge tree in the middle of the field, for example, I also get quite attracted to dips um, in fields and also um, high areas. So it's all that sort of stuff, surveying the land as you arrive. Sometimes the fields are just flat and nothing is given away. There is, they're holding all their secrets to themselves. So you just kind of have to go for it. But sometimes it's a feeling, sometimes you actually can work out a little area like oh you know I'll, I'll perhaps go to that dip over there and have a little go i'd, I'd argue is just described landscape archaeology i mean you, I, you, you could give a give Stuart ainsworth a run for his money with that approach <laughs> i i i would just come in and actually say but yeah that's like trench envy you know where you, you all arrive first thing in the morning and you and you're trying to secretly hustle your way to the trench that you think is going to be most profitable or something like that yeah but sometimes it's just, there's, a, there's a feeling that happens we're humans and i love that and i love the idea of going to the tree and things like that because we're picking out stuff that that we're naturally attracted to I think there's something about the randomness, though, that's quite different to archaeology, which actually, at the same time, does bring another dimension, which makes metal detecting, you know, quite important. So, I mean, that there's not really a way, and I don't really envisage this happening, where a sort of an archaeologist driving their car along the road and sees a field and thinks, oh, that's a good place to dig a trench. But obviously, that is how metal detecting sometimes sort of happens, you know, 
that it's just you've got the permission, as Emma's explained, you go onto the land, you search it and you start to find things in a random sort of way, potentially. But obviously, that then does provide the clues that add to knowledge that mean that we understand the countryside more than urban areas, uh, for example, you know, using false productivity scheme data and things like that. So I think um, I think in some ways the differences are quite interesting, quite useful from an archaeological landscape perspective. Um, and that's certainly seen what you know we, we get with the Portsmouth Antiquity Scheme. We get lots of object types that are hardly ever found in archaeological excavations that seem to be common through metal detecting. And, and that's fascinating in itself, isn't it, really? What, what, what are we missing in archaeology that metal detecting is then adding further information about? You just made a point there, Michael, that um, sort of leads on to a question I've been, been intriguing, intrigued to ask. So you, you mentioned at the start how many items that you, you're getting and you have had over the over the years and you get you're seeing particular common types of artifacts maybe some less common types of artifacts is is that during your time and maybe Emma I'll ask you this as well but um perhaps Michael first is, is there a type of artifact that's come up in in your time in your involvement in the protoplanetic scheme that has has surprised you perhaps it's something that's regularly occurring like a ring pool that makes you go yeah I like that because it tells us x or is there a really rare art, type of artifact that's not bright gold but a mundane artifact that really suddenly makes you think, oh, that's that's a really useful insight. Well, I think that happens a lot, actually, because um, one of the things which I'm in a very kind of privileged position as is that I can obviously, you know, I'm only one could go onto the Portsmouth Antiquity Scheme database, but obviously I'm seeing things that are popping up all the time. And a lot of my research is based on the fact that I am interested, I suddenly get interested in an object type and thinking, gosh, you know, what what's that about? So, for example, one thing I'm, I've done a bit of research on in the past is these... Um, what they call Limoges enamels. They're essentially these um, bronze fittings that come from caskets that were made at Limoges in France. And they end up in the plough soil. Now, most of these um, in museum collections are kind of come through from churches and things like that. So they're in church treasury. So they're the complete objects mm. that are basically produced of these little bits and bobs. When they're found through metal detecting, they're only found as small single elements. So they're a bit like um, Meccano, if you like, you get a wooden structure and you put all of these metal bits on it to create a, a, a chalice or a processional cross or anything like that. But they're mostly associated with ecclesiastical stuff, but they are only found as fragments through metal detecting, well, small fittings, and they sometimes are bent and damaged. And, you know, a paper I've written recently on them is about the kind of link to the um, to the, uh, the, the dissolution of the monasteries and objects like this being destroyed and ended up in the soil. So it's a very different record through what than what you get through sort of archaeology really so yeah there's loads of those sorts of stories that can be told through these small metal finds that's a really good answer emma what about yourself so when you're when you're in the field or when you have been in the field you say eight, last eight years or so um yeah what, what's what's really caught your or piqued your interest in that time um just going back to the landscape archaeology really quickly i i remember being on a, a club dig and it was on this big hill and you know we're detecting away around this hill and somebody found um an, a, an anglo-saxon disc brooch and it was incredible still had garnets in it still you know all declared and all that sort of stuff afterwards but that was on the side of the hill and it was that from that point i was like hills like if there's <laughs> if there is a hill or a slight rise in an area i'm like yeah we'll go in there 
um, which is is kind of that learning curve as well as a metal detectorist in my early days. I wouldn't have necessarily thought, oh, you know, it could be a burial mound. It could be it could be the site of something else. Or, But now learning that, there was an incredible find there. Some other little bits came out as well and, you know, straight away hills. So that was uh, an amazing find. Um, for me, the things that also really piqued my interest are those one-off type items that you find. Um, for example, I found a heraldic horse pendant and um, it still had the enameling on it. And for me, that was a bucket list find. When I found it, I was, you know, I was kind of shaking. I was like, yes, love it. Amazing. Couldn't Did you wait. do the gold dance? Or whatever um, they do in the program. <laughs> I, I was very, very excited, but I don't think I did a little dance. But um, <laughs> I was more like I, I, I was just so precious about this and enameling on it. I was like, right, I need to get it, you know, put away properly and record it and where I was and all that sort of stuff because I wanted, to, I wanted to go home and just research it to see if I could link it to the family. Um, you know, got sent it, sent pictures off to my flow, and we eventually found loads of documents with similar images and stuff and that for me those it's those sorts of items that you can actually link to a, a family name in the past those one-offs probably never going to find a heraldic pendant like that again or the chances are at least a very very slim it's those items for me that are, are, are fantastic that is that is a that is a, a lovely thing to have found emma and it w- w- would you probably describe that as your 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 best ever find your favorite find yeah, it's probably it's probably one of my favourites. It's definitely up there. Yeah. So I, I I know this isn't a traditional career in ruins episode. We're here we're here with a purpose to do a special, but um, we do have a few questions we tend to ask folks on the podcast, and I'm quite keen, Emma, as you're our first detectorist um, uh, interviewee, um, to kind of throw a couple of those questions at you, and you've you've already answered the first one beautifully, I think. But we tend to follow up the what's your your kind of proudest find or best find with is there anything you're particularly envious of? So have you been out on a club dig, for example, and someone's found something and you thought, oh, I wish I'd found that. Many times. <laughs> that has <laughs> happened many times. Um, you know, everyone kind of has those items that they they wish to find. And it just turns out that your friend or the person detecting just slightly over there, a couple of meters away, actually finds the item that you really, really want. Um, an example for me would be um, a gold posy ring and a re- with really lovely inscription. Again, it's one of those items that can be linked to somebody in the past. It's so mm. personal and I that those items are like my favourite, but definitely the gold posy rings with the amazing inscriptions, dates, names. I've seen a few of those come up uh, on club digs that I've been on, so I'm, I'm hoping one day they'll be there, one for me. <laughs> fantastic and we, we we tend to finish the or round out the podcast with asking asking our guests where they'd go if we could give them a return ticket and a time machine and the our regular listeners will know that one of the reasons we do that is it's quite nice to force archaeologists to uh think about where they'd really really like to see what they'd like to flesh out what they'd like to add and i'm really intrigued to see your take on that emma emma if if we could give you a return ticket to anywhere in history with a uh, in a time machine where would you want to go and what would you want to see that's a really difficult question because <laughs> i think about the, the immediate thing i think about is like you know oh would i want to go back to the city of london in like the 1500s i'm like probably not <laughs> it's actually <laughs> going to be probably awful um I, I wouldn't want to be you know i'd probably be someone of low low wealth and not having a great time at all so i'd, I'd 
that's a really difficult question <laughs> you know if i could choose my position in 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 life going yeah. back then perhaps it's, you know it's a very clever time machine you can you can choose um high status person of means that's that's fine yeah <laughs> I don't, yeah in that case i don't know if i'd want to be around the monarchy <laughs> back in uh in in medieval times either just that seems a bit risky um but i no i don't know it just seems that all those times seem a bit dangerous to me <laughs> Honestly, one of the best answers we've had. I guess um, before I hand over to Neil for sort of a um, a bit bit more of a reflective view as we close out, um, Michael, people that are listening to this this episode um, and want to know a bit more about the portable antiquity scheme, the best practices that they they should and could follow, also or perhaps find out about how to join a club and and um, where to start off from. What what advice can you give them? Yeah, so in terms of um, the Portable Antiquity Scheme more generally, I mean, our website, finds.org.uk, is probably the best place to go to. We've got quite a lot of information there. We've got money from the government, um, actually, to kind of redo um, the PS database and website. So in the future, it's going to be even more easy to use than it it is now. But still, there's a lot of information um, up there, which is, is great. In terms of starting metal detecting, I mean, I think one of the challenges for people you know, wanting to start the hobby is, is where to go to begin with, really. And, and like Emma sort of implied, you know, sometimes people can get on quite a wrong path by speaking to the wrong people, potentially, um, but also on a good path if they get good advice. So I think it's it's really important to join one of the kind of national metal detecting organisations, probably, because I think most of them give pretty good guidance in terms of best practice and they all they all support the code of practice for responsible metal detecting. Um, so that's obviously a, a good start. Um, one thing I've been sort of thinking about myself is, you know, whether there should be some sort of course that people could potentially go on that allows them, you know, introduces them to sort of metal detecting. And that happens in, in some countries. So, for example, in Denmark, within the regions, um, there's often um, kind of clubs that work with the local museums to run such course. So people not only know how to use the machines, which obviously is what they want to do, but also kind of the, the best practice and the guidance that goes with that and also um, explore some of the topics we've talked about here in terms of you know what else to look out for besides just the objects in the ground type thing. So um so yeah so I think um there's so certainly I think people need to kind of hook up with someone who's experienced essentially at, at metal detecting to get the best out of it and to make sure they get the best advice as well. Jason, thank you, Michael. And Emma, in terms of a final pitch to people who attempted or feel they might want to get the bug from detecting, how, how do you want to sell it as a as a hobby or or a discipline? It, um, I, I I do want to sell it and I do want to big it up, but I also want to say it's not all gold and silver and treasure. Um, I I want people to just come down a tone and be realistic, and we do wade through a lot of mashed up tin cans and a lot of aluminium and things so it's it's hard work but if you are really if you really have that bug if you're really interested in history archaeology and just that sort of theme of stuff it's really fun and it's really it's quite therapeutic as well um and just to get out in those fields search for search for history um yeah but it, it is amazing but it is sometimes is hard work you have to sift through a lot of not fun stuff you know you have to sift for a lot of boring items sometimes to get the the good finds it's great thank you and I, I guess when you do find the good stuff then that just makes it even more rewarding <laughs> the amazing feeling of finding you know um even just a silver hammered coin or something that the, the even you never forget the first one i i never forget the first one i found and 
um I was you know that that had a gold dance style to it and I'm running across the field to my friend and that stays with you for a long time so it's those sorts of feelings are uh, are worth it thank you Emma Neil I wonder if you'd be happy to take us home then in with regards to um a sort of synopsis of what we've been chatting about and your thoughts with regards to Portable, portable antiquity scheme, um, metal detecting, and and our discipline as a whole. Okay, so so there are a number of strands that I found really gorgeous in this conversation. The, the parallels, I think, is a really important one. But I think what Emma was just talking about there about it not all being gold, um, and I think it's really really critical that we remember that. And that actually not only does the mundane actually tell us quite a lot about human life. Um, but also we made quite a lot of really significant things that weren't gold and silver and they can be equally as important. So this morning I went over to the Yorkshire Museum and I visited the Rydale Hoard, which, whilst it was recorded through the Portable Antiquities Scheme, actually wasn't classed as treasure because it didn't have any precious metal content. And really significantly, that has led to a change in the definition of treasure so that we can now include items that uh, have a non-precious metal content. And when I talked to the curator, the, the thing that they say was most important in the future about that change is not that they'll still, that they won't have to pay for those items to get them into their collection, but that it'll give them more time to raise the money to potentially uh, acquire those items. It'll give more chance for discussion about what to do with things. So again, it's really interesting how the portal antiquity scheme is evolving, because actually what it is doing in that long run is broadening the conversation. And, and don't get me wrong, this goes back to this idea that, that metal detectorists and archaeologists aren't a million miles away. Uh, the, the, the process of using a metal detecting is a, is a form of technically remote sensing which is no different than looking at an aerial photograph, no different from doing geophysics. You need a Section 42 license to metal detect on a scheduled monument as you do to um, use geophysics on a scheduled monument. I think where we really have a lot of work to do is actually how we um, create a better conversation about the point of intervention, which is you know when we all put spades and shovels in the ground. And we must not forget, all of us do that. The very essence of both metal detecting and archaeology is holes in the ground. Yeah. And we've got to get away from the idea that one hole is deemed to be more um, worthy than another hole. There are absolutely ways of doing it. There are ways we can do it that can actually try and secure the context. Um, but there is an element, if you like, of randomness about some materials in our landscape that will only only ever be by chance by somebody walking in that direction and maybe we should just be more open and happy about that totally and completely subjective nature of what we actually do so again i i've, I've been struck in my time as an archaeologist how we've tried to create archaeology into a very objective very science proven absolute discipline where it couldn't be further from that and actually, maybe we need to actually be slightly more flexible about the subjectivity, about that fluid nature of it, about it being human and tactile. And, and when you then enter into those conversations, it becomes really meaningful to me on a personal scale, on a human level. 
And that's where you create the real impact because you create new human stories. And, and I, I liken this process, going back to our theme of archaeology and creativity, to archaeology being the process by which we create the collage of place, memory and meaning. I think, I think we've all talk, talked about that before. And what, what do I mean by that? It's where we, we place on the world, our map, our place, our own stories and our own meaning and our own understanding. And actually, um, an archaeologist does that no differently to a metal detectorist when they're exploring a landscape. And I think that that is the most powerful impact we can have. Brilliant, Neil. That's a really nice uh, way to fi finish up the podcast, I think. Um, that just leads me to thank all of our guests today for a really interesting insight into something that we haven't spoken about before. Um, do check out the Portable Antiquities website. That's finds.org.uk. But also, hopefully, we'll have this out during the Festival of Archaeology. So do, while it's still running, go to archaeologyuk.org forward slash festival and see what's taking place in your local area or a bit further away go and go and explore a bit more of the uh, the country if, if you can but there's so many incredible things taking place and I'd, i would just like to take this opportunity to just say that we derek and i will always look to support the festival of archaeology as, as korean ruins and we we see it as being so valuable but also we really appreciate what the, the council for uh, for british archaeology do for us in korean ruins but also the discipline as a whole so um Enjoy the festival, everybody. Thank you for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you all soon.